Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Billy Hampton is the third assassin to be trained at this institute. He was an aggressive heterosexual adolescent male. We encouraged his sexual fantasies. We fed him aphrodisiacs and psychocolic stimulants. We made him adore his body, love his manhood. Then we took it away. Welcome to the beautiful gardens of Brindavari, the village where your pleasure is our business. We were chartered in 1988 under the Common Market Recreational Fund as a community devoted to the refinements of sexual pleasure. Under the enlightened leadership of Commissioner Major Guthrie Whitbread, the village legally offers girls and boys in the peak years of allurement. Enjoy yourselves in safety and health. As part of the Common Market Restructuralization Program, we work for you. Our purpose right now is to kill Major Guthrie Whitbread. A petty bureaucrat. Billy, do you know who Major Whitbread is? He is a tiger keeper. His tigers killed your father. They want to kill you, too. Major Whitbread actually is a tiger. See the claws and tiger stripes? He wants to kill you like he killed your father. So you must kill him first. And if it's your privacy you're worried about, don't. We're a corporation that has absolutely no connection with the government. Do you sometimes feel that life is not worth living? I'm not sure that ever happened. Do you understand the dread consequences? Failure brings what are the dread, dread consequences? consequences. Success brings the one. So what happens when you kill someone? They go to heaven. Ghost, you know. I go wherever they call me. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Dashu. What can you tell me about your dreams? 
on this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the 2019 film Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited. It's an update of the 1983 film called Taking Tiger Mountain, which stars a young Bill Paxton as Billy Hampton, a man who's been brainwashed and sent to a patriarchal country by a group of militant females in order to assassinate its leader and stop the widespread human trafficking in which the leader indulges. I guess that's a pretty good summation of the film, but this is one of those films where it's not really the destination. It's more of the journey. So, Heather, I'm very curious. When was the very first time you saw Taking Tiger Mountain or Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited? And what did you think? The first time I saw Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited was about, I'd say, two months ago. Um, I'd actually been approached to uh, to see if I was interesting in writing about it, and then uh, in tandem with that, write the uh, the essay that's going to be on the upcoming Etiquette Pictures release of it. So I was I was like, okay, it's Bill Paxton. I love him. It's based on a William S. Burroughs novella. Okay, you have me intrigued. And as far as what I thought, my first thoughts when I finished the film was like it was a process. Like because there's so much weird layers and sort of slight stabs at linear, like at, at there being like a linear story, but then it's not really linear. <laughs> so I think my first thought was like, I don't know how to feel about it. But then like the more I thought about it and, and processed it, I actually really was like, Oh man, I, I respect this. I really, really, really dig this film. And Chris, will your wife ever forgive me for making you watch this movie? I'm not sure God will forgive you for making me watch this movie. No, you know, here's the thing. And, I, and I've and i said this before when I've been on here, when you've been on, on my podcast, you always pick movies for either you and I to talk about on my podcast or when you invite me, when you graciously invite me to the projection booth that are completely outside of my comfort zone. And I told my wife this last night when we were watching this, and by we, I mean I, and she was kind of trying to ignore it. It is a film that pushes you so far outside of your comfort zone that either you're going to be on board and be intrigued by it, or you're just going to sit and say, I can't wait for this fucking hour, 10, hour, five minute movie to be over with. For me, I don't know if my, I can't speak for my wife. I don't know if she'll forgive you. She'll forgive you probably when she finally meets you in person. But for me, it is a film that is so, so much more than what it is. It's more about what it is, not what you're watching, kind of to Heather's point. And reading about how this film got made is, is almost more and probably is more interesting than the film itself. There are, a lot of films like that where it's like the backstory to how this got made and why this got made is a lot more interesting than what you're seeing on screen. That's kind of the case with this movie because it is – I'm actually going to say that there is no linear story. It's just kind of a very thinly held together series of scenes with Bill Paxton and sometimes he's wearing lipstick. I think I saw this one – a while ago, this was a movie that was on a friend of mine's wanted list when it came to the old VHS trading days. And somehow, either he or I, and I don't even remember who got a copy of it. And yeah, I was overwhelmed by the movie. It's definitely a really art house pick and like sometimes you just go into a movie theater you sit down you experience a film you're not really sure 
exactly what all is going, and it gives you something really to process for later. Um, maybe process it while you're watching it as well, which hopefully you are. And this was one of those. And then seeing it again with Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited, um, and I actually sat down and I had two screens up. I had the Taking Tiger Mountain, which I think came off of like a three-quarter inch Umatic version. And then I had the new one, and I was watching those side by side in order to see what Tom Huckabee had done in the intervening years between those two things, which was an interesting process to see where he kind of flipped some scenes and stuff to actually give it more of a linear uh, narrative. Believe it or not, this was less linear at one time. It's an interesting film. It doesn't get any place in a hurry, but I enjoy the ride while it's happening. Um, well, enjoy might be too strong of a word. It's an interesting ride. I'll say this much. Uh, the I watched, I mean, obviously, I think all three of us watched both of them. Revisited, <laughs> if you're going to watch this, that's the only way to watch it. The original is, if you can find a copy worth watching, it's hard to watch the original, let alone comprehend what is going on. But the 4K remaster that is revisited, that has also been, like you said, Mike, kind of dialed in a little bit, is it is the way to watch it. That's for sure. I find the biggest difference to be those moments when Paxton is under observation, that we really realize that he's under observation because we are now seeing him framed by a device that looks like a screen, like you are watching this guy on a screen in those moments. Yeah, otherwise it's just grainy. It's just a grainy nightmare. I think we're all just really, I think we're all just really taken aback by how great Bill Paxton actually looks in Lipstick. You're really obsessed with this. Chris. I mean, it's it is such a. I mean, it's so striking, right? That 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 screen cap of him smiling at himself with the lipstick on is striking. This was actually not the first time I ever saw Bill Paxton in lipstick. For anybody who's fans of the band Barnes and Barnes, which Bill Paxton, of course, directed their music video for Fish Heads, but he also appeared in. About three-fourths of their videos. And he actually has a cameo for the video for A.A. at the end, dressed up like a sort of deranged geisha. Bill Paxton's avant-garde work is really something that people don't talk about nearly enough. And yeah, when I finally realized that it was him in the Fish Heads video years ago, I think it was during like one of those Dr. Demento takeovers of MTV, I was just like, holy shit, that, that's Chet from Weird Science. What the hell's he doing there? Well, the fact that not only he started it, but he, he made it. Like, yeah. he actually took that. I think, I remember hearing that the uh, video won like some kind of a uh, film festival which is awesome that yeah no that's one of the things that has always really appealed to me about bill paxton as an artist was he always you know he had that history and he always had that edge even in some of his more mainstream roles like some people just kind of naturally have that sort of like innate to use a subgenius term slack and uh bill paxton just had that in spades and um and i think that's the thing about him and taking tiger mountain uh, revisited too is that they filmed this in the mid to late 70s. Like, Paxton's pretty much the age of his character in the film. Like, he's around, like, 18, 19, 20. And even at, like, this sort of young, early stage of Paxton, like, his just innate charisma and also ability to kind of, you know, show, like, nuance and emotion. Like, I mean, because this is obviously, anybody listening, yeah, this is not, like, a super linear film. 
And there's not, like, a lot of monologues. There's dialogue, but there's not a lot of overly sort of theatrical sort of type speech that a lot of actors use to kind of show their chops. But um, but he conveys a lot with his face. Almost like a great silent film actor. You know, it's so cool. That's the cool thing about this film is to kind of see just this raw gem of Bill Paxton, especially in such a all-encompassing sort of uh, bleak universe that is this film. Yeah, one of my favorite parts about this film is actually the radio broadcasts that are going on, where they're talking about, like, giant alligator rats. And what they essentially describe is what is going on in New York right now is Escape from New York is happening concurrent to this film. Like, the entire city of New York is destroyed. People are, like, living on subsistence farming on the roof of skyscrapers. It's completely insane. That's where I feel, and I could be wrong about this, Heather, but I feel like that's where we have the biggest conduit to, like, the Burroughs-type world. So this film is an adaptation of the William S. Burroughs novella Blade Runner, a movie, which that in and of itself is a sort of script-like sort of adaptation of the Alan Norse uh, science fiction novel The Blade Runner. I'm sure you guys are immediately thinking, like, is this anything to do with the Ridley Scott? No because that's obviously Philip K. Dick. But this is where the movie did get its name, Blade Runner from the Norse uh, book. But that that's, I think, the only shared thing at all. But yeah, like the novella, like the Burroughs novella, like if they would have made a direct film adaptation of the novella, it would have been a high budget thing because the, the novella takes actually, there's like scenes in New York. And yeah, you have like what Chris spoke to about like, you know, animals running amok. There are sharks in the sewer. Uh, there's flooding. Um, there's a public execution of um, Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if that was in the book, but the that was speaking of the radio things that cracked me up in the movie where one of the radio news broadcasts announces that there was a public execution of Richard Dreyfus, which I know Mr. Holland's opus isn't that great, but it seems a little harsh. <laughs> I was going to say for the. Pos- for the Poseidon Adventure remake called Poseidon, I think he probably deserves it. Oh my goodness. Chris is like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please murder Richard Dreyfus. God be God be with you, Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> but again, like those radio broadcasts are so great in really establishing the world that this takes place in because I don't think the film does a lot on its own to do that. And that's great that they really take the time and effort to do it outside of that. And that's a really not like cheap, not cheap in like a shitty way, but like cheap in like a cost wise way, because obviously this film was shot on like a shoestring budget. That's a cheap way to create a world for this to inhabit is by doing everything in ADR, which by the way, they, they actually did everything in ADR. Which is astounding, and it, and it really works in a way, because it kind of makes this like weird ethereal quality to the film. This idea of having this wallpaper of sound, they did something similar in ZPG, they did something similar at the beginning of Mad Max, and it feels like this is like the world that Winston Smith is going to live in, that's that world too, where you just constantly have noise and have feedback and have, you know, news reports just going on and on, like, you know, going into a restaurant and them having Fox News or CNN on all the time. It just feels like that wallpaper where you just can't get away from that kind of stuff. And using that in this way provides such a real texture to this film that 
if they eliminated that, this movie would be 90% silent, I think. I'm so glad you both brought this up. That's actually one of my favorite, I think, aspects of this film is just the whole use of sound in those broadcasts just really helps create this sort of like panoramic universe of paranoia. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And just this uptightness. Like, this is a society where, you know, there's no, there's no real love. Everything, basically, everybody's kind of looking out for something. And, like, you know, you have the, you know, the main plot, which is basically, yeah, this is, there's a lot of sex trafficking going on. And there's legal prostitution, which at least that seems, you know, that's obviously a lot less sketchy, <laughs> you know, a lot nicer. But, I mean, you know, when uh, Bill Paxton, when his character arrives to uh, the main village of Carm, I'm going to try and say this. Any Welsh listeners, if I screw this up, please don't be mad at me. <laughs> but it's Carmanthenshire, which is in South Wales, like this village. And he immediately gets pickpocketed by like this kid that's almost a toddler, like this tiny little kid. It's like, this is the kind of grubby, no kind of hope universe. And the sound really emphasizes that because it's funny, the novella, I mean, is, is set in New York. And so it's kind of a cool contrast to go from like this urban dystopia to like this little rustic looking village. How could being company really do a good job of, 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 you know, accurately creating just this tense, just this whole tense film experience. Have you guys ever read Alan Norse's Blade Runner? I have not. I need to. It is nothing like the Burroughs novella. Shocker, right? <laughs> but just so you know, it's pretty much, if memory serves, I've read this a long, long time ago, but if memory serves, it's pretty much a straight sci-fi book about a guy who is actually running blades. He is kind of uh, like a surgeon on the run kind of thing, transporting medical equipment. So it's it's almost like... Um, uh, the guy that did all the Xanth novels, he had one called Prothos Plus, which was all about a, an interstellar dentist. And this was more about an interstellar doctor, if memory serves. But it is so much more straight sci-fi than what Burroughs did. And other than the title, I don't really see that much connection between it. So, Heather, if you ever get a chance, or Chris, if you guys ever read the book, feel free to tell me that I'm absolutely 100% full of shit. But that was my memory was just like, there's nothing to do with this. I see much more of a connection definitely between Blade Runner, a movie, not the Ridley Scott movie, but the Burroughs book and this. Though there are definitely some differences as well, but uh, the one, it really seems to inform some of the sensibilities of this movie. 
I'm curious to see what you, Chris and Mike, what your guys' opinion is of this. Because um, adapting Burroughs to film is a very, like, in my opinion, very, like, almost foolhardy, <laughs> like, adventure. Like, I love Burroughs. But, you know, he's one of the writers. I think he's one of those writers where it's just really hard. I mean, like, I love Naked Lunch, but obviously there's some deviations from the, from the book. But then again, how could you? Like, if you've read Naked Lunch, you can't, you know, trying to do a straight film adaptation of that that's completely accurate book, you know, good luck, especially getting any funding for it. But I feel like totally this film, even though it's not to the T to the novella, it feels Barosian. Like there's touches, you know, and uh, especially with like, you have issues like gender amb- ambiguity and uh, definitely like fluid kind of sexuality as far as roles go. Also like going back to the radio thing, like there's like, you have like, just you'll hear like snippets about like one moment there's cannibals the other minute there's a reference to the rosicrucian army like to me i can't think of <laughs> it just to me just feels like so perfect if you're like a bro or burrows fan like the rosicrucian army like, but where were the mugwumps that is the question uh they are not in this film unfortunately but you know and i agree burrows is some of these postmodern authors it's just it really is foolhardy to think that you can adapt them in a way that is going to not only satisfy the people who have read the book, but also just a casual moviegoer. I mean, look, Naked Lunch is, for all of its successes and failures, it is a film that is polarizing. And while I enjoy it, I completely understand the the lack of interest in a film like that and trying to adapt anything Burroughs post-Naked Lunch. But yeah, I, I would have to agree 100%. Burroughs is just one of those authors that I can't imagine someone going, you know, reading one of his books and going, oh, yeah, let's adapt this. Like, oh, no. Like, no, no, no. Yeah, we're not no. going to get some uh, big budget version of the ticket that exploded starring Paul Rudd or anything. Though I'd rather see that than The Adventures. Go back to, like, you know, there's sexualities used in this film typically kind of in like a predatory way. I mean, you don't really see anybody raped outright or anything like that, but it's like you have at one point Bill Paxton getting drugged by some old woman that he's sharing a room with. who's all bragging about her conquests. I mean, just like weird stuff like that. And there's like this weird sort of pickpocket androgen young man that keeps kind of hitting on Bill Paxton, even though he's clearly like, hey, I'm into girls. But then again, his like sexuality and gender have been kind of tampered with by like the study group. And that's alluded to, though it's never really quite seen, other than the the aforementioned lipstick. Oh, I mean, the whole thing with Bill Paxton, didn't they, they cut his dick off, right? Well, they say that, but then you see it in the film. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's still well, there. <laughs> well, they see it, but they, but they also say that they reattached. <laughs> They're like, we cut off his penis and uh, chemically castrated him, but then we reattached. It's like, oh, what is, like, that? the, the beginning of this film is so... So, such a stark, like, that, that, like, beginning purplest of purple goddamn prose is so over the top. They're like, we removed his penis and then gave him estrogen and then reattached his penis. Like, what is, what are we getting ourselves into? It's the sexuality in this film. I think that beginning monologue of the study group is so telling of what you are getting into that it really does it's kind of this warped sexuality that i mean in the context of what the film is going for works completely 
Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, I also kind of wondered no, because I when I first started watching it, and you have that opening scene. I was like, what? What is that? What are we? What's going to happen? But then. You know, at one point, I kind of wondered, like, you know, it makes you, it's like your linear brain tries to process things and be like, okay, if he was castrated, well, you know, he's still obviously, yes, little, little tease for everybody. There is some, there is some Bill Paxton nudity. Of course, I think Bill Paxton was always very free with these things, but, uh, (laughs) not a bad thing, everyone. You know, with some of it, it's kind of like, it's some of this to kind of add to like a layer of sort of, um, maybe confusion or just kind of painting the picture just like this is sort of what's what it's come down to is just people everyone's a pawn everyone's pawn for somebody else's somebody else's uh motives and sometimes those motives are good and sometimes they're not so good but then those lines can be obviously blurred too i don't know it it definitely gives you a lot to chew on right well and the the thing is is obviously the study group's motives i would say are not villainous but what they do to bill paxton is really morally morally bankrupt but what they're trying to do is they're trying to stop sex trafficking and violence against women which obviously in the universe that this film is taking place in is rampant and you know what they're doing is morally right but the way they're going about doing it is morally bankrupt agreed and that's um which is kind of another thing about this universe and this film is that Bill Paxton seems to be really the only major, I mean, he's definitely the only major character where it's just like, you do sympathize with him and you like him. And the only person that seems to really show him like proper kindness is probably like the prostitute. Like there's this name of the prostitute. She's very gentle. She's very sweet. It's almost like if you didn't know she was a, a sex worker, you would almost just assume like, oh, that's a couple, you know, just having having a good time like it's it's kind of phrased like that which is interesting because everything else he's either getting like outright attacked by people there's the the aforementioned sort of overly chatty boy man that just wouldn't shut up like that character got on my nerves <laughs> i was kind of hoping for a vulture to come down and pick his innards out and he keeps like like trying to touch his leg and paxton's like dude like he didn't say he doesn't say dude in the movie but <laughs> <laughs> he might. Well, you know what? He might have. Maybe not in this movie, it. but, he, you know. He had dude in his yeah, eyes. I was thinking. Um, but, um, though, but, but with that character, it's something that is kind of fascinating uh, with the film is you get sort of flash cuts of, uh, you know, Paxton and, and this chatty Kathy character embracing. So it's kind of I don't know it's it definitely adds the to the ambiguity factor. But even the even that character like he alludes to basically it seems like he's been trafficked too. It just feels like I mean we see like a human auction in this film. Like men and women both are definitely just everybody's kind of just you know a piece of me. Like because he alludes to you know like oh you know I I don't mind it as long as they don't beat me too bad or something like that. <laughs> it just and um. And just something that can kind of, like, be summed up, I think, is that Paxton says at one point, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm used by the world, which I think is such a great heavy line and one that could be applied to anybody who's, you know, in real life, who's especially people who have basically been really used and abused by their, their government. The disenfranchised. Which, I mean, it goes back to the study group and their intentions are not impure. I mean, what they are doing is something that the governments clearly don't care about because the governments are okay with 
the their you know their constituency being underneath their thumbs and they are okay with that and they are allowing these bad things to happen and i i find that so interesting because that is one of the big points about this film is that those in power don't care and they're frankly the some of the ones going about doing all these bad things anyways so this study group has to take it upon themselves to try and course correct by killing this horrifying monster of a man who seems like, you know, your grandfather, essentially. Which is an interesting juxtaposition of things, because, you know, you would think that this is some sort of, you know, oligarch, massive monster of a man who, you know, enjoys... And he does, and, you know, the, the, the older woman paints a picture of this monster, and then when, when Bill Paxton meets him, he's just like this elderly man who you know, could not do much of anything on his own, to be perfectly honest. He's just, and he seems to be just kind of living in a nostalgic sort of haze for, you know, when he was in India and encountered, you know, which a reference to the title, these, you know, this group of people that lived on this mountain because they were afraid of the tigers that lived, you know, that were kind of on the grounds, on the flat area of the grounds. But then it turns out the tigers don't exist. Which I think is, again, like, the end narration and the end kind of scene of the film with him talking is such an, is, is a perfect way to end the film. It's almost like a cipher for the rest of the film. Or like, not a cipher, like a, if the film is a cipher, it's kind of like how you would decode the film. That like final scene. Because the actual final scene of the film leaves you almost empty handed. Yeah, it's, it's no, it's no fun. It's, but this, this film, Bill Paxton gets murdered on the beach, stabbed to death. Like, there you go. Okay. Did we say spoilers? (laughs) We we are now. (laughs) Did you not want me to talk about that? I mean, I don't know how we would talk about this movie without talking about it. Sorry. Well, actually, Mike, you brought up the vultures and seeing Chris, you talking about the climax, which results in in death. Like, what did did you both think about? Because the vulture imagery seems to be something that just kind of reoccurs throughout the whole film. I will say that I missed a lot of the vulture imagery, other than when the vultures actually, they're eating him. So you'll have to fill me in on some of that stuff. There are moments in the film where you either hear like a vulture, or there's, to me, it almost seemed like a dream or... Or like a like a weird like mental state. Yeah, thing. where he you you occasionally would see an image of a of a vulture throughout the film. There's a lot of things going on in this movie. <laughs> like if somebody was going to do like a layer cake breakdown of everything in this film, that we would have to make this like a four part. This is like good literature. This film is very much drawing from literary kind of inspiration, obviously. I mean, just on the base level. And so it is very layered, and there is a lot going on. And there is more than is just you're being shown, which is an interesting way of approaching it, because if this were being shown in a film class, this film is rife with all kinds of different interpretations and imagery and symbolism and all kinds of stuff, which makes it an interesting film, because... Normally, and I don't know, you know, speaking to this film on its own, like how successful this film really is and what it does, the introduction of the vulture imagery just, I think, further reinforces the idea that those in power are picking over the people that aren't. And that's kind of what the vultures do is they they pick over the dead bodies of those who can't protect themselves because they are shocking dead. So... I think that's what they must have been going with for the vulture imagery. But I mean, I could be reading way too much into this film, but that's what the film wants. The film wants you to read into it. At least that's the way I interpreted it. 
I can see that. Yeah, it's it definitely kind of seems like there's a lot of death foreshadowing to me in the film. Like, it, even at one point, Billy, like, Bill Paxton's character says, I'm like a ghost, you know. So if anybody's, like, depressed or you're having a bad day, you may want to save this one for... <laughs> This movie chokes me up too, though. And this is something that I feel like kind of goes without saying, and, and I may be speaking just for myself here, but Bill Pat With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Paxton, as an actor, has been in a lot of stuff that I really love. And it's unfortunate that he passed away. It was last year, two years ago? Long before when he should have been taken because it, he he died after like post-surgery, right? It was like a relatively straightforward surgery and he passed away due to that. So like watching this is a little bittersweet because this is his first film and like he really nails it so well that it's like, man, I, you know, it just reinforces me like what, what a lot of people like we talked about have really in their mind of Bill Paxton as, you know, Hudson from Aliens or, you know, the punk from the first Terminator or Near Dark. And then you see him in this role that is really playing against what pop culture has kind of painted him as as his quote-unquote type is is really interesting for me. He really has like a huge part in like pop culture as like a like one of the better, uh, you know, character actors who ever, you know, laced up his boots and went and did the the acting game. Well, and speaking of pop culture, I should say all this way into the discussion this movie has nothing to do with the Brian Eno song, just so people know. I know that some people are like, oh, cool, something based on Brian Eno or he had something to do with this. No, he had nothing to do with this. There is no connection, as far as I know, to the Chinese opera that has a very similar name as well. So it's just uh, kind of a interesting way to keep twisting that title, because I think you know the Chinese opera was first and then the Eno album. And then I can't remember if Huckabee said that he took the title from the Eno album or the opera. So it just keeps going on. Well, and if you want to search anything about this movie, you have to really go out of your way to make sure you're looking for the right thing to your point, Mike. But it has gotten more publicity recently because it is, you know, there's a release of it, a 4k remaster release of it, which is also really fun that there's, Things like this that's essentially like almost tantamount to an experimental student film getting a release in 4K that looks amazing. I mean, the quality of the 4K release is so good compared to the original version of the film that you can like readily quote unquote find. 
Yes. Well, in Etiquette Pictures, they um, they also did uh, Some Call It Loving, which, Mike, you and I, we've talked about before. And uh, Catch My Soul, and both of those were gorgeous. So it's a, it's in good hands. And, Chris, you mentioned the word bittersweet. It's funny, because if you look at IMDb, the last credit on Bill Paxton's resume is taking Tiger Mountain revisit it. So you almost have this like circular thing going on where it's just like his first major film is kind of his last two, which is sad, but kind of kind of cool. You know, if it's like if you're going to go out, your first movie should be your last. But I'm glad you mentioned the thing about Eno, uh, Mike, because when I first like ever heard of this film, I was like, oh, cool. Like I, I was one of those people because I love Brian Eno. <laughs> It's like sweet. I love Friday you know, and I was like, "Oh wait!" But it worked out because I'm like, "Oh, I love you know, I love Burroughs." It, it all works out, except if you're Bill Paxton in this movie. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with one of the directors of Taking Tiger Mountain, Tom Huckabee, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The welcome Study Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. From, from page to screen. So they have nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look, but sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually, and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that. <laughs> it's about the acting and about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. <laughs> Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, Who's, Who's Prince? Who's oh. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. Tom Huckabee, you have done a lot of stuff over the years, and I—I got to ask you. I mean, how did you get? What was your beginning? How did you get interested in show business? Um, well, it was uh, goes back to my father again. Um, unbeknownst to me, uh, his mother—I uh, felt like something. Might, the phone might have just dropped out. Are you still there? Okay, yeah. Um, uh, unbeknownst to me, his uh, mother had bought him a really fancy 16 millimeter Bell and Howell rig with projector, camera, um, editing equipment, 
Uh, and he shot a lot of home movies when I was a toddler and um, then put it away. Uh, but there was a, a closet that had all the stuff in it, you know, a screen. And then he had some old, like, cart Disney cartoons and stuff like that. And and a big box of films that he had shot before I was cognizant of anything. And uh, at 13, uh, my friend Mark Benedict came over and uh, had a wild hair. He decided he wanted to be a photographer, but he didn't have a camera and uh, wondered if we did. And I said, yeah, my dad's got a whole closet full of cameras and opened it up and we found this thing didn't know what it was uh and um it was very odd uh because it was a 16 millimeter cassette uh loaded film you would buy these cassettes that had 50 feet uh, kind of like super eight uh so it was um super high-end consumer product Sold by Neiman Marcus, where my granny liked to buy, you know, uh, her big gifts for people. And uh, so it was probably, I don't know if you know Neiman Marcus, but it was probably their main, every year they have a main thing. So it was probably the main thing of that year, which would have been, I'm going to say 55, the year I was born. And, but anyway, Mark came over and we went through, we found this thing and discovered it had film in it. And we figured out fairly quick, it was a movie camera. And, um, and, uh, and we figured out it had half of, um, the film left. Uh, and I think they were just two minute rolls. So, um, we went out, we got some, a wig and a couple props. Uh, I had a dream catcher and uh, and a robe, a velvet robe, and we went out in the backyard and we forced around. Mainly, uh, I had, um, I don't know, somehow knew how to make somebody disappear. So we did a lot of that. And uh, I had to read the book, you know, to get out of do the exposure and uh, focus, and it was all totally manual. There was just nothing, um, you know, uh, automatic about it. And uh, and then we turned in the film. It was like ten dollars to uh, process it, which was, you know, all the money we had between us. And uh, and we got it back, and we had the projector, which was just a just a battleship of a director of a projector. I wish I still have it. I think uh, Billy Moomy, the the actor, may have it. Uh, but anyway, um, so we watched it, and the first minute was me at four. It was Christmas Day, uh, and it featured all of the children in my family. I guess I was. Uh, or four or five and my older brother and younger sister and younger brother and my, uh, and then, and it ended on a shot of me and then, uh, cut to a shot of me at 13. Um, you know, pimply faced and, uh, 
everything. And, uh, uh, and there was an ex, they had given us a free roll, a free cassette of film, which was, um, a $10 item too. Uh, cause they thought they had ruined it because the first minute was completely washed out from the years, uh, and then the last minute was perfectly, um, yeah. Uh, so that started it and, uh, we made a few more 16 millimeter films and then realized we couldn't keep doing that for the cost and we bought a, eight millimeter camera and then upgraded to super eight and i made a bunch of films with my high school friends and then in 1973 in the spring i met it would have been march 1st i think i met bill paxton on a plane going to england we were both exchange students going with a group of high school students from he was from Arlington Heights uh, High School, um, where Lee Harvey Oswald and John Denver had gone to school. It was sort of the most uh, prestigious public school in town and the, on the nice side of the tracks. And then I came from Southwest High. Uh, and so there, uh, we met on the plane and... Uh, I don't know if yeah, Bill was the most, uh, you know, likely to succeed, most popular fellow everywhere he went. And, uh, I don't think he, and you couldn't help but, uh, be, you know, notice him. Uh, but, uh, I was much more shy and reserved and I don't think he noticed me much at all, but, uh, nor in the first couple of weeks of um once we got to the school which was um this incredible gothic uh building built by uh John Wesley the instigator of methodism it was his monastery and, and uh they converted it into an american private school affiliated with the university of texas anyway uh a couple of weeks into our trip uh i received a letter back from home that I had won first place in uh, a student film competition um, for a movie called Into the Light um, that I had made as a sophomore in high school or in my, uh, no, it would have been my first this was my the spring semester of my junior year of high school. Bill had already graduated uh, from high school. He graduated early, uh, but we were all taking the same classes. I was just getting high school credits. He was getting college credits. Uh, and I got uh, from this award $50 in a form of a check, which I... Uh, he encouraged me to cash immediately and, uh, buy a beer for everybody. And, uh, so I think I spent all the money on beer for entire pub called the Lass of Richmond Hill for anybody out there that, uh, is from, uh, Richmond, England. Uh, by the end of the four months that we spent there, we had, bonded thoroughly over our love of movies. He had made a couple of 
Super 8 films in high school. At least one of them was uh, where he imitated Charlie Chaplin, and he was very influenced. Actually, he preferred Buster Keaton, but he was very uh, enamored with silent films from the 20s, and uh, but he also loved, loved uh, Clint Eastwood. Those were his two favorite things. And then I had already become a foreign film snob at 17, uh, and my favorite directors were Truffaut and uh, Fellini and maybe Godard. Uh. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, I think we saw Clockwork Orange together. Kubrick became the bridge uh, between our two interests. Uh, Bill loved action films and dance and uh, violence blowing stuff, things blowing up, and uh, and then I was into reading subtitles. Clockwork Orange was, uh, blew, you know, our minds, and interestingly enough, uh, Bill ended up becoming very close friends with uh, Malcolm McDowell, who was his neighbor in Ojai. After we got back to Fort Worth, Oh Lucky Man, which was the follow-up McDowell's follow-up, uh, next film after Parker Orange, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by Lindsay Anderson, um, in music by Alan, the keyboardist of the, of the animals. Uh, incredible soundtrack with this fantastic, which kind of narrates the movie. And, uh, it's a three hour film because an hour of it uh, is Alan, whose name I can't remember, and his band playing all the songs on camera. But this Oh Lucky Man became this Bill's theme song. And uh, there was a, a quatrain, which in maybe one of the other songs that went, uh, smile while you're making it, laugh while you're taking it, even though you're faking it, no one's going to know. He took that on as his theme song and we would sing it. He was destined for big things. Uh, everybody knew that. He hadn't yet, you know, decided really what it was going to be. But uh, when he met me, uh, I think he had had drama classes, and uh, but he hadn't set his mind on being a filmmaker where I had. And, but I think he quickly decided after seeing I'd made a bunch of films by then and after we got back here and he saw everything I'd done and was impressed uh, we bought the first Super 8 sound camera together called a Kodak Ecta Sound which was just a black box with a handle uh, a lens a little zoom lens and a microphone 
and we just wore the wore the motor out taking little movies together. Tell me, how did you get involved with taking Tiger Mountain? So then, uh, for about a year, Bill and I made films together uh, with another friend, uh, Danny Martin. Even had uh, one of them premiered at a local bar that Bill hung out at. I think the there was a brief period when the drinking age was 18 uh, in Texas, and Bill had made friends with a bar owner, and we had, uh, and he had a lot of friends, so we sold out uh, our first uh, screening. It was a takeoff of um, Clint Eastwood movies, an uh, ultra-violent gore fest called um, The Parable. So after maybe not even quite a year of that, um, uh, Bill's dad saw that Bill had a serious interest in filmmaking, which uh, he had, which uh, John Paxton had always had, had flirted with being an actor himself or fantasized about it, but quickly had four children and uh, a wife to support and went into the family lumber business as vice president and ran the Fort Worth division. But uh, he was really excited to see that Bill was serious about something uh, because he'd never... Bill was pretty wild, you know. He uh, he was a wild teenager. Imagine Jim Morrison. And if you've ever... But so anyway, John Paxton bought Bill a one-way plane ticket to Hollywood. So uh, he got up there and he did immediately... Get a job from one of uh, his dad's references. His dad knew famous people, and Bill started working at. You know, he immediately. I mean, he was doing everything himself. I think Bill. Um, I think he skipped from being PA within a day to being production designer on Kent films, and and they just bonded very quickly. This little. It was a little autoerotic kind of thing that was called D'Artagnan, but it was, I don't think, it was never finished. And before finishing that, I think Ken had, Ken had been part of that. Brilliant, educated. His brother was the conductor of the Seattle Symphony, so he came from a, a lettered family that expected great things. And uh, and he had already written quite a few screenplays. His tastes were more like mine, but just more sophisticated since he was 10 years older and had grown up in Hollywood and Oregon, I think, and, uh, gone to UCLA and, uh, graduated and, and had been out there, you know, during the, cultural explosion of the 60s and uh, so he was very familiar with all the beats and particularly an incredible library collection of already actually owned pic uh, pictures by Fellini and pieces of Egyptian uh, murals and stuff like that. He'd been, he was a world traveler as was Bill. Bill had been around the world at least once, probably, before he was 
12 or 13 and been to every great museum in the world uh, with his dad, who was whose hobby, which was almost to the point of an art form, was art collecting. And so Bill had an encyclopedic knowledge of artists. Kent got inspired to write a film specifically for Bill. So Kent, he could write a script in a weekend, like a Sam Raimi. And uh, so he wrote this script called Taking Tiger Mountain. Stole the name from the same place Brian Eno did, which was the revolutionary com revolutionary Chinese opera about a true military campaign and uh, during the revolution. And but it was based on the story of the kidnapping of John Paul Getty the Third, which had which had been front page news that month that he wrote the script. And, uh, you know, uh, you probably know that, um, Ridley Scott actually made a movie about the actual kidnapping last year, I think. But anyway, uh, it was loosely based on this, was also inspired by Camus' The Stranger or informed by The Stranger and, uh, The Trial, Kafka's The Trial and, uh, Cocteau, there were lots of dreams in it because it was inspired by Burroughs. Kent, uh, he would uh, shoot in the Casbah of Tangier. Kent was always, he was a world traveler and anytime he could figure out an excuse for going to an exotic country, he, he would do it. Uh, Bill was a total extrovert. Kent was kind of an ambivert. They, uh, so it was set in the Casbah of Tangier and they just, uh, flew off with the short ends from the film Lenny by Bob Fosse, all the leftover footage, which they got real cheap. Uh, it was 10 hours of 35 millimeter film and they rented a old Aeroflex 35 millimeter that was fit. The technique which had been phased out by the, I mean, a uh, format that had been phased out by the time I edited the film, but, Oh, most of the French New Wave and Italian New Wave, all the great indie foreign films, probably I would have guessed that Sergio Leone's films were shot on Technoscope. It's a two sprocket hole pull down. So you, uh, essentially there's two 35 millimeter frames in any for a normal one frame in 35 millimeter. Therefore, it is a flat uh, 35 millimeter medium that allows you to use uh, normal flat prime lenses rather than anamorphic lenses. So you get a sharper image and you uh, use half as much film. And it was a very normal thing to do at the time they did it. It wasn't normal to not bring uh, sound recording equipment, but he, I think he was inspired, um, by Fellini and the Italians who don't know if they actually recorded sound on the set and then just doesn't, I don't, maybe they didn't even record sound on the set. Maybe they did it exactly the way he did. And so he had a lot of dialogue sequences and, and he knew what he wanted them to say, but, um, he knew, I think he knew in advance that he'd be casting people that didn't speak English and that he would just have them say, there was a legend about Fellini, which is probably actually true, uh, 
that he would just uh, cast people for their looks, and it didn't matter what language they spoke, and he'd have them read the alphabet in their own language, and he'd just dub in what he wanted them to say later, so that was their intent. But when, so they got to Spain, uh, rented a car, ferried across the Mediterranean and were immediately arrested for not having, you know, alerted the authorities in Morocco beforehand. But, uh, I know you asked me how I came. So I'm going to cut to answering, but there's a whole lot of interesting stuff. If you want to come back later to it about their experience in Morocco and then how they got to Wales and and then the production of Wales. And then when they got back to L.A., before when Bill had been calling me and writing me and saying, come on out, Tom, it's awesome. You know, by now he's working for Corman and uh, he was just doing amazingly well and working with famous people and blowing my mind. And But I was still in high school, you know, so I had to, you know, I was like, oh, I got to graduate. (laughs) <laughs> but I'll be out as soon as I do. And 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 as soon as I graduated, packed up the you know, truck and moved to Beverly uh, Hills, that is. I think the film arrived from England maybe after the same time I arrived. They packed it all up and sent it by ship. Uh, probably took six weeks or something. And uh, But it all arrived and... Um, I got to watch it all with Kent. I feel like Bill was not even there. Either he was on a job, maybe Crazy Mama. That was his. That was a big job of his. It was his first acting gig. He was the set dresser, and but he got a line uh, from Jonathan Demme, and I got to see it. Uh, day of it being shot, first professional film I ever got to see. I ended up becoming fairly good friends with Jonathan Demme, who became a mentor. So I saw all the footage then on, you know, just daily and, uh, was very impressed. You know, widescreen, beautiful black and white. Kent was a good cinematographer and very provocative. I had lots of sex, explicit sex, uh, and action, which I attributed, you know, definitely to Bill and uh, violence. Uh, Kent tend, didn't tend to be anyone, inter- you know, interested in violent films, so I assume Bill, you know, did most of that kind of stuff. The action sequences were his and the stunts. Bill loved to do stunts, risk his life, and you have that incredible scene which there's a whole lot more of in the original version of Taking Tiger Mountain rather than Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited where I cut down on the scene of the vulture sitting on Bill's stomach and Bill's it's a dream sequence and Bill's supposed to be dead and the vulture is eating his entrails and the way they did it was they uh, well, I think first, I think the reason it came up was that, you know, they were just, uh, following their nose by now since they had to move the whole production from its original setting to the boondocks of Wales. And, um, so, um, you know, they were having to reshoot, uh, a rewrite as they went and they were meeting 
people in pubs and and uh, saying, hey, you want to be in my movie? Apparently, the people at the time in the in this rural community of Wales um, thought they were making a horror film, you know, because of scenes like the one I just described. But anyway, they found this uh, man uh, who had a trained griffin vulture, trained in quotes, uh, but he could get it to fly away and come back. And he managed to, uh, and he could get it to eat, you know, on cue. And so I'm sure it was Bill who had the idea as, hey, how about uh, I'll be dead and carrying for your vulture. They staged it in a very oblique way uh, with no coverage where you can hardly, barely see just how dangerous it was. Uh, I think they put maybe a, some sort of padding over Bill's chest, bought a pile of sheep entrails and put them under on top of the padding and then buttoned his shirt. And then the, I, I don't know exactly how it went down after that, but uh, what you see is Bill on top of the shack and then this vulture on the other side of uh, the roof, walking towards Bill, and then mounting his chest, and then uh, eating the guts. And it went on for probably a whole, I don't know, there's probably five minutes of it. And like in the outtakes, uh, you know, it's just uh, very disturbing as far as, uh, you know, the thing has razor sharp, Talons uh, and razor sharp uh, beak, and it's just going, you know, to town, ripping this stuff out of his entrails off of his chest, and you know could have easily, have, you know, nicked his juggler vein because uh, the juggler vein, if you noticed in the shot, is thoroughly exposed, uh, and I guess a foot away from the. In trails. Now, this was very impressive when I'd seen it, but not unprecedented since Bill, like I said, uh, uh, his idea of making a movie in our early days was to do something dangerous and have me film it. You know, I'm going to get up on that three story building and, you know, jump off and you shoot it. Did the story change between, because from what I understand, the movie was shot mostly in 77 and please correct me if I'm wrong and then it came out in 83 or was finished in 83 the first version of it it was shot in 74 74 okay and I graduated in 74 in May of 74 and probably arrived in August or September so yeah fall of, let's say fall of Kent went back Wales maybe a year later because he was still trying to you know finish the film but he went back with he could only afford 16 millimeter but now he had sync sound and he went back and conducted interviews with all of the characters all the actors who and none of them were actual actors um, but he had them in character uh, the only piece of that I ended up using is the final story, the story of taking Tiger Mountain, told by the major Whitbread kid. 
So how do you kind of take control of the project? I spent a year out in Hollywood, and uh, but by then, Bill had, uh, at some point, I believe he moved to New York to study acting with Stella Adler, or had gone away on a film. I think he was working maybe for Brian De Palma. He ended up forming a very strong relationship with Jack Fisk, the great produ- production designer, who did Eraserhead, and all Terrence Malick's first films and later films and uh, directed uh, some movies that were pretty good and uh, was married to Sissy Spacek. And so Bill uh, made very close friends with them. And and I think he may have gone off to work with Jack on a film. Anyway, I was sort of left floundering uh, socially, had a girlfriend at the University of Texas, so I gave up the ghost. Uh, I had a pretty good job at a place called the Film Factory as a gopher. But anyway, gave up the ghost, went to, um, I remember when I was leaving, my boss, well-known figure who directed award shows, his name was Gene Weed, and I remember him saying, he was, he had, you know, become a real mentor and really cared about me. And so when he heard I was quitting to go to college, uh, he said very suspiciously, what are you going to study? I, I think I knew that my, that the truth was going to hurt. And I said, film. And, uh, he was pretty dismissive, you know, uh, because his thought was, why do you need I mean, back then, you know, hardly anybody went to film school. They just, you know, they just worked their way up like he did. And, uh, and I, you know, I think he knew I had a pretty good position for working my way up. And I did, but I was homesick. And, uh, University of Texas had a pretty good film department. And I had incredible facilities. And what I didn't know was, um, you don't actually get to take film classes until your third year. And I was an addicted filmmaker. Uh, the whole time I was out in L.A., you know, I kept making little movies, and and that's what me and Bill did. You know, when we got together, we were more like artistic business associates, even more than we were friends. Uh, you know, I think I had a set of friends. He had a set of friends. When we were together, we were always making a movie. Once I got to school, thing didn't work out with my girlfriend. She'd already gotten another boyfriend. And then I found out I wasn't going to get to take any film classes. And when you're 18 and uh, full of ambition and two years just sounds like a lifetime. And uh, so I immediately made friends with uh, other people that had felt you know, my age that felt ripped off that they uh, couldn't take film classes. And we, so we just started making movies. And by the time I actually had a film class in my junior year, I made a movie called The Death of Jim Morrison, which um, was about the life of Jim Morrison flashing before his eyes as he was dying in the bathtub. Most of it I just made up out of what well, came from a dream. Uh, uh, I had a dream of the death of Jim Morrison, uh, that he had been murdered. 
And it was a whole, if you ever saw the movie Nicholas and Alexandra, there's an incredible sequence of the murder of Rasputin. This somehow Jim Morrison in the bathtub in Paris, which I'd read about, and the murder of Rasputin somehow merged together uh, to create like a storyboard. I literally saw the opening three minutes, you know, shot by shot. And then I knew, uh, okay, it's going to be, that's what I'm going to shoot that. And then I'm going to have another 10 minutes of his life flashing before his eyes before he breaks on through to the other side at the end. So that movie came out really, really good. My professor, who ended up being very involved in taking Tiger Mountain, Lauren Bizens, thought I was a complete loser because I never went to class. You know, he just figured I was a stoner until he saw the movie. I saw my, you know, dailies. I'd spent the whole summer. I didn't have time to go to class because it was a very ambitious project. So uh, when it was done, uh, caused a lot of controversy on campus. Um, the famous director Edward Demetric was uh, had been hired. He'd been part of the Hollywood Ten, had directed the Kane Mutiny and Murder My Sweet and The Young Lions, and and had before that had been one of the best editors in Hollywood. Uh, but anyway, he'd been hired by UT. And he saw the original cut of the death of Jim Morrison at the parent teacher's night and uh, was uh, quite outraged. Uh, and he actually, the next day, I audited his class. Uh, I didn't really know. Uh, and I sat on the front row, and he didn't know who I was. And he spent the whole hour lambasting all the students about the movies he'd seen the night before. But... Whenever he spoke about reference to something that had offended him, it was from the Devonshire Morrison. All the other students knew who I was and that I was sitting right in front of him. And also, uh, it did turn out <laughs> there was a couple other films that were also violent and erotic, uh, like mine, um, with disgusting stuff. But anyway, he said that he had. He was so offended that he got on the freeway and he was driving back to Hollywood where there's, he felt like there was still some decency left in the world. And then he changed his mind and thought, no, I'm going to come back. I'm going to instigate a censorship program and I'm going to, you know, straighten these kids out because they're on a path to destruction. And in truth, we were, because punk rock had just arrived, and we'd all, I was the only one in my whole crowd that didn't go down to see the Sex Pistols in uh, San Antonio, but I did join two bands with other people that did, and all that was happening while I was editing uh, The Death of Jim Morrison, so there, it ended up causing a lot of controversy where Demetric was advocating for a censorship board and went to the dean of school and the other young professors, the young Turks that backed me up were, you know, arguing against it. And, uh, and then, uh, in the same day all this was blowing up, 
I saw him talking to Tom Schatz, who ended up also being a consultant on Tiger Mountain, and I walked up to him. I walked up to them, and Tom said, oh, uh, Ed, uh, by the way, uh, this is Tom Muckabee. Well, he knew my name by then, and he looked at me, his jaw literally dropped, and he said, you're not a monster. You know, he'd seen me around. I was very um, mild-mannered and uh, uh, effeminate, actually, and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, and courteous, you know, I, been raised by, you know, good parents and uh, whatnot, and uh, I got, you know, he had had an image in his mind of what uh, I don't know what it was. I guess maybe a, just a hell's angel or something like that that would be dressed in, you know, spiked collars and stuff. But anyway, uh, so that threw him for a loop. Uh, and it kind of took the wind out of his sails or cut to about a m- month later. I enrolled, uh, I was now a senior, uh, and I enrolled in his editing class. And I more or less in his class, uh, I don't know if he actually advised me, but certainly, uh, I went to class, you know, studied actual editing under him, uh, and he was a Brilliant, brilliant editor. We watched his films, and I cut two minutes out of the film, and uh, which was mainly pig slaughtering, and uh, which we had shot in a slaughterhouse, and found footage pornography that we had incorporated into it. And uh, and uh, so I took two minutes of the most gratuitous pig slaughtering and pornography out. And he changed his mind uh, and decided it was the best student film he'd seen since he'd been in Austin. And he sponsored it for a Student Academy Award. And it ended up winning the regional division. So it went to Hollywood. And um, they didn't. It was in the experimental category. And when the results came out, there was they didn't list a winner for the experimental category. And uh, Ed told me that uh, the death of Jim Morrison had won, but the Academy didn't want their name on it. But anyway, all of this kind of made me um, ended up being instantly successful and famous because we caused a riot at our first show that was sort of set off the entire Austin uh, New Wave. There had been a or bands before us, but uh, this first show of ours got written up in Rolling Stone and went on AP Wire and to, you know, magazines around the world. And Devo saw it, and when they came to town, they wanted to meet us and had hosted us backstage. And so we were instantly uh, famous and notorious and riding punk rock. So anyway, this all of this gave me a kind of a cl- kind of clout for an undergrad, and then the school purchased a 16 millimeter 35 millimeter. Uh, I had optioned a post-apocalyptic story called Mary Margaret Roadgrader, which was uh, uh, Mary Margaret was an American Indian in, in the future, and it was a uh, 
the story was about a tractor pull, and she was the only female entrant, and uh, she ends up uh, beating all the guys. So it was a feminist um, post-apocalyptic story, how the feminist element got into Tiger Mountain because it hadn't been a part of the Kent and Bill's project. Couldn't figure out how to raise money to to shoot a movie, Mary Margaret Roadgrader. So I got the idea of, um, because of the um, equipment that they had that nobody was using because nobody was shooting 35, I discussed it with my professors and I said, I know of this unfinished film. And they said, yeah, you know, if you can work something out, you can... Uh, have the machine, nobody else is using it. So it's very easy. I, just, I think just a, one call to Kent. He'd spent five years trying to raise finishing funds and had given up. He was happy for me to carry the ball for a while, see what would happen. And uh, yeah, I think that answered your question. So it all arrived, you know, in great big tin, great big boxes. That began about a six-month process of reviewing it all, categorizing it, and, you know, there had never been a rough cut. He had rewritten the script to kind of fit the footage, so I kind of I had a script, but, of course, it's silent. There's, some, there's several dialogue, lengthy dialogue sequences. Uh, first, I just cut it into a narrative flow using the best scenes and the scenes that he'd shot and uh, that added up to about 15 minutes and then I knew that uh, well for one that you couldn't do anything with a 50 minute widescreen 35 millimeter black and white movie that it had to be a feature and I heard that a feature had to be 75 minutes but I also knew I didn't even have a full story and uh and that it wasn't going to work to tell their story because they couldn't go back to Wales. And uh, so what I did was I just started showing the footage to friends and professors and playing a game, you know, saying, what do you, it was like, um, I remember a thing when I was in kindergarten where we would get this magazine called The Weekly Reader and it would have a painting on the front a painting of each kid and his dog and his parents and his little sisters. And every Friday it would arrive and we'd have a storytelling game where each kid would get up and tell their version of what's happening in the picture. Uh, and I was really good at that. I remember one kid who couldn't do it at all would just get up and cry. So I knew I had... Uh, an innate storytelling experience. And I had done other films of found footage. I'd done several of that where I would just try to shape the footage into, you know, narrative flow or something that would hold people's interest. And I was watching movies like that. It was the fam most famous montage collage artist from San Francisco, I was also seeing Maya Darren's films, Kenneth Angers, Stan Brackage, and a lot of experimental filmmakers used, you know, worked with found footage. And uh, my profs uh, were totally cognizant. They were 
all kind of hipsters who'd come from um, the film department at Iowa, Illinois, I believe. Uh, Short of people, and they, you know, and people will say, "Well, I think it's about you know this," and they, they hadn't read the script. I'd read the script, but I didn't want to tell them that because that wasn't going to help them. And uh, and then I got uh, you know I get ideas uh, that were kind of pieces like pieces finding pieces of a puzzle. Uh, I'd never taken a class in screenwriting, and uh, and then but I didn't really get a script. I mean, didn't get a new story out of all that until uh, I consulted with a a man named Ray Layton, and he was a very mysterious guy who had come. I think from California. He looked like Roger Dalton, the taller, and a uh, very handsome, blonde man, and he put on avant-garde conceptual theater, very much like Sam Duckett were, especially the work without actors, and uh, the only piece I ever saw of his was called Cry in a Time of Exhaustion. They had a, an aborted fetus, or it was like, actually, the drawing is amazing. I should post it. Of um, maybe a star child from the end of 2001 holding a AK-47. And the actual piece is just a wall of set decoration and shadows, like, on the wall, lighting effects, and then Ray was behind the wall taking photographs of the audience. So this is a guy, but he also indicated that he always had this one beautiful female assistant with him. He wrote down everything he said, and he appeared to be some kind of guru or cult leader who acted like he had followers in every town, so inferred that he did. I once got cheated out by his assistant for arguing with him about some point, and that I didn't know who he was, and I didn't know who he was. But anyway, I knew that he had some background in avant-garde dramaturgy, and that he was just a very cheaper psychedelic uh, thinker, for lack of a better way to sell it. And I brought him up, and he looked at it, and he was uh, very impressed. He hated everything, very impressed with it. And he said, here's what the movie is about. It's about... Um, this, uh, this town is a prostitution town. It's in the future. They're in an apocalyptic setting. And, uh, I think he literally said, you need an element about militant feminists conspiring against the authoritarian patriarchy that, that, you know, he, he, he had that, the germ of being what ended up being the, the new plot. Just to clarify, there was no, sound that had been recorded and so you're just all silent so did you have to I, well i know the answer to this so you had to go back and add a whole audio track is that right yes every um ounce inch uh how would you describe that what would be the incremental <laughs> every second i suppose every millisecond now that and it might seem like a massive uh amount of, well it was it was a massive amount of work but um what you saw in the new version would be, since probably the majority of the work for the new version was in sound, in a year, you were every inch or second of the sound, 
certain time that I reevaluated every frame that is the same, and added to what had been done in the uh, 1980s version, of which I spent three years, nine to five, to 24-7, building the soundtrack. They built the whole thing in Austin when I was in school, completed the soundtrack, and I graduated, basically, they discovered I was trying to drag out my graduation so I could complete the film that you see without spending money. I think that was discovered, and I was just, and then I had to figure out what to do. I had basically two choices, stay in Austin and go professional, you know, and I priced off, you know, the mixing stages and whatnot. Smith and Smith said, come, come back out here and uh, I'll help you. That was an offer I couldn't do because he was very experienced in all forms of production, post-production. We rented the front bed and put it in his office. He didn't love non-professional actors. He didn't love people I've hired to play the on-camera characters or the BBC people. He had a, a little bit of prejudice about Texans in general, you know, that they were hit and, uh, and he believed that we could get much better voice actors in Hollywood. Which is too simple too. As well, we hired mostly actual Welsh professional Welsh actors, and um, and recorded all of the dialogue, both the radio and the on camera characters. And I think I used half of uh, the replacement, and then. Um, because ultimately, I think that I may have had a little bit of an argument because I felt like some of the original voiceover and dialogue was well done, was better than what was got in LA. And at this point, I had final cut, so I kept half of what we've done in Austin and the big post half with fantastic actual big people. Most of the people in Austin had been touching the stage actors and <laughs> so that whole wall-to-wall sound that is in there, the news reports and all those things, were those part of the 83 version or just in the recent version? Completely in the old version. And that, I think, was recognized probably by a lot of critics as being the most effective part of the film on, in the original version. And then, for instance, David Moore's review that's uh, in his book, Lord of Gone Wild, um, you know, uh, what's the subtitle, um, something like, a guide to post-apocalyptic music, something like that, is in Cognitivia. His review of it talks mostly about the post-apocalyptic elements, which were only and completely in the radio um, broadcast. The concept of that, to people that maybe haven't seen the film, is that it, it, the idea was that if I cried out at Stay Night for 51 or Brave New World, it, just pretty much all of those dystopian and early novels and movies talked about, you know, that had some kind of big brother, usually on television, the propaganda that's being, and I know, I know I didn't have any, couldn't do TV, and 
Is that the idea that in a post-nuke world or somewhere I read, because I had by now been several other post-apocalyptic movies and had been had seen all of them and was kind of obsessed with psychology, I believe is the, the theological word for it, uh, end of the world scenarios. And, but I knew I didn't have TV. And so I got this idea from shooting somewhere that in a nuclear war, uh, one of the first things that is lost is, um, electronic, uh, all the electronics are dis- destroyed, somehow melted down, uh, maybe more as much modern as me. So the thought was that could explain the return to analog systems. There go why the women in the opening scene are using film. As you can tell, it's got film dirt on the film. The idea would be that, you know, the the internet has been at least, um, you know, destroyed. It could be, you know, bought up in a, you know, uh, medicine or fledgling form, but that things like circuit television and, uh, even telegraph, that all the old forms of communication would come back. So when you're done with this in 1983, what happens to it? How do you distribute it, or who sees this movie? Well, it was the, uh, immediately discover or um, let's see. I think the first professional person that came on board was David Whitten, who was had been in distribution and marketing. This time, he might have already been working for Best John. He had been employed at the landmark. Theater chain years earlier and had stood up to a man that was robbing the box office and got shot in the neck. Previous to that, he had been a marketeer of exploitation movies and he may have come up with the tagline, keep repeating, it's only a movie. I know he came up with, I know he worked on some of those Herschel Gordon Lewis. Uh, movies and came up with some of the classic uh, things like having the nurse in this theater to teach people that it pops out from the court families and whatnot. And that uh, David signed on to, uh, he was blown away. He had also been a friend of St. Smith. I'd met him through St. Smith and we've been talking and he was recovering from having been out of commission um, the neck uh, wound that struck his spine and uh, but he back and looking for things to do and he loved what I'd done with Tug Mountain and he took it on and he found a distributor called Horizon Films. The only thing I can name off the top of my head that they distributed is Penelope Spirit's first film The Decline of Western Civilization uh, but they had Quite a few films that were being distributed on the um, landmark theater circuit, and they had their, they were very closely connected to landmark theater circuit. One of the, their main suppliers of films, and uh, I think David also introduced me to the vice president landmark. The guy's name is Terry Thorne. He went on to be kind of the gallery of animation. Uh, I think that's what he does. But anyway, I got a job. They hired me at Landmark to be an in-house 
and producers of like trailers and packages of short films. And then and my main job was to run the Hollywood Erotic Film Festival, which I did for two years. Meanwhile, they did get me the marketer, uh, marketer and then Connie Salveria, who ran Horizon, uh, and then Walmart, uh, conspired together to, um, release the film and they put it on their circuit and displayed a minimum of two days to a week in every market where they had, uh, theaters. And I guess they, yeah, they were definitely the largest chain of repertory houses. Then, um, uh, I started out on a tour going to, um, I think they started out in Texas maybe because that's where I was from. And, um, I've been screening in Austin where we've done all the work. In the Dallas screening during a live on camera interview with me, I have started seeing her dad abdominal pain and ended up at the hospital misdiagnosed as a stomach flu. I've had one previous similar attack and but anyway, I couldn't go through I had to just drop out of the interview to go to the hospital. And then back in LA a week later, recovering from that attack, had another attack where I was putting up blood. Anyway, it turned out to be a pinkitis. So I was taken out of commission. And not long after that, Horizon uh, Films went bankrupt. So uh, the film died on the vine, had uh, received um, mixed reviews. The best reviews from Judy Stone uh, in San Francisco, the billion of uh, the following tale of the West Coast, who uh, quite liked it. The worst reviews, I think, were from people in Texas. Joe Logan is the name I remember it most, who just dismissed it as experimental failed process. And I've written in my graduate statement, I tended to, oh, I agree with the naysayers more than I did with the uh, people that loved it. And it was the uh, reviews that I returned to a year ago or so when I first started uh, remaking the film. The criticism to heart, uh, one of the main consensus opinions of even the people that like the film, that the story behind it is more intriguing than the thing itself. Uh, and so I set out with the very explicit aim of making a film that was as good as the story behind the making. What was that decision? Why did you say, I'm going to go back to this film and revisit something that, I mean, you worked on a long time between the 70s and the 80s, and that had... Been, I would imagine, you, we talked last week about films aren't finished, they're abandoned. Why was this film picked up and, and not abandoned again? Well, the, over the years, the, um, the interest in it mounted amongst Jimmy Files and the Paxton fans and William Burroughs fans. It was um, listed um, as the only screenplay that Burroughs ever contributed to of a feature film. And then, of course, Bill has a legion of fans around the world. And uh, the Paxton completed. And he felt, you know, surprised and not being able to see it. Meanwhile, a very, very crummy copy 
on VHS that have been made explicitly in ABC for sending to foreign or to, to send to festivals, actually foreign festivals, as a uh, concept kind of thing, or just a, um, because there were many other ways for them to see the film. And at the time that that transfer was made on a rent-to-impel machine, I was given the choice of, um, of doing it letterboxed during the entire frame. Uh, well, I was given three choices. Or, or panning scan, which would have been, you know, like ten or twenty thousand dollars that I didn't have. Uh, or, or, so I had, so I just plain couldn't do that. Uh, also, that would have been mainly so that it can play on TV. And at the time, there was probably definitely no television network in America that would have, you know, played the film because there was some stuff that Maybe the USA might play network, but that wasn't going to be worth. Even if they did play it, it wasn't going to play to, you know, the parents then. And so I had to choose between the why This is probably of interest mostly to people my age, and maybe I was on budget. But at the time, yes, there were a few films going out, white scene films going out, uh, you know, in the Oh, what do you call the, in the full frame? That was, but, uh, but they would then be seen on, you know, TV that were, I think the average, the Trinitron TV, I think it was a 15 inch, and that was the, like, that was the war horse that so many people had that I had. That was 15 inches across. So that month, you know, if you're looking at a white screen film and pretty much I think the only letterbox films at the time were, were, uh, had been enabled by Martin Sosecki. It seems like he was leading the charge about that. And he probably had, you know, a big scene. Well, he's probably, yeah, I mean, video things, he's probably watching on a wall side, you know, scene. And it, it's fine for him, but most people. Uh, so I opted for the, to just, uh, I also couldn't do, um, call, uh, any video, uh, politicking. Um, uh, I've been struggling to come up with the right word to, uh, what it, what you call politicking when it's not, when it's a black and white thing. Being something like that. And, uh, so we, um, so that copy, that VHS copy, or pre-cordage copy, regardless it is, uh, what we call Minimum red, low, you know, resolution was created without any scanning, and it was just essentially the middle half, maybe, or middle 60%, maybe, of, of the screen. And then that went out around the world to capture some of those copies were kept by people, and then, uh, and then were made, and it, it was during the time of, you know, a lot of, uh, piracy and, and for those, I guess, the creator of the most collectors and then as soon as the web, YouTube, um, became, you know, popular, people started putting it up on YouTube. And, and after that happened, then people were getting to see it, uh, and the, and discussion groups, uh, started. 
this is worth talking about because uh, young fellow, young film student in Vancouver and Turner Stewart uh, participated in a talk about discussing group, and I just discovered the group and laid in and started up a uh, friendship with him, and he said, I know this company that releases old movies. By now, I had had other novels, and it had played in New York at the Intelligent Film Archive, gotten a nice notice in the Wall Street Journal, um, and there had been some revised screenings, both of the film, uh, in live streaming, at places that had projectors, and then I'd had a very successful screening at a microphone in Brooklyn called the Optical House, uh, where we just watched the middle 50% of the film and heard the soundtrack and it was the pop out and they laid it out. So uh, I can see, um, especially that amongst younger people, they were getting, they were getting the movie and filling in the gap of uh, what was missing um, and that there was a much more educated, larger cinephile group than there had been when the film was made. And, um, but Turner Stewart then made a call to um, Vinegar Syndrome, uh, a successful distributor as mostly uh, like driving movies, but they had just started an art house subsidiary and only had one or two titles. They had a Guinness Copper film. They loved it, and it was perfect for them. And so they sent me a little advance, which was um, big money uh, for me from the very beginning. They got talked to David Bill Potson. He was fine. And uh, if the film coming out, but I told him I wanted to make some improvement. They discussed that with Andrew Syndrome, and they said, you know, that's fine. Uh, uh, we'll add it to the DVD uh, as an extra when you're done. Uh, so then, to get there, uh, and uh, but that is still their plan. I believe they're releasing the original, uh, which um, you know, because they did up the first day, and they did an amazing job with the public rating, uh, and they're going to put it out in July uh, digitally in America and I think they're mostly concentrating on the DVD and uh, and they will include revisited uh, as an extra on the DVD. Uh, well, the movie looks fantastic. I can't believe the quality of the transfer. It looks so good. Yeah, thank you. You know, uh, and that's because, uh, well, for several reasons, they did a great job, uh, but also, um, the negative had not ever been touched. Uh, it hadn't been touched, you know, the technical state negative hadn't been touched since we transferred it to, uh, back in like 1980, uh, to, um, well, we had, uh, a negative cutter had to cut it, and I couldn't remember. I did that myself. I don't think I did. So it was touched by professionals. And then one time to the lab, it was gone to an optical center, and then it was put in the film. And I've been carrying them around with me ever since. I've uh, sent so much of the uh, materials, worked on and uh, 
uh, all the sound things which I totally regret. I don't because when we did the night, all we had was the recap from Master and all the radio was married to all the dramatic uh, dialogue and that is any problem. But uh, yes, that's the specific um, notation about it looking so good. Uh, several things. Um, being shot on technoscope, it is, um, they were able to use prime lenses. Uh, and um, if anybody had ever seen the film before, it would, what they would have seen, even on film, would have been uh, three to four generations away from the original, uh, going to technoscope uh, negative, I mean, uh, uh, anamorphic negative and anamorphic positive. And then release print. Uh, so the, yeah, so anyone, even today, if they put up on print as a film and then projected the video, there'd be more resolution, more information in the, in this video. Um, that was done. Yeah. Um, however, I will say that I built this new version from uh, a, a uh, what do you call it, a 10, 10 28, anyway, a, from uh, the very bottom high resolution um, thing, uh, which is all I've received. Uh, so I think the DVD, the film quality, just the film quality will look even better uh, on the old version uh, that they're going to market on the DVD than it does on the new version that it'd be on the DVD at the next one. So when we talked last week, it sounded like you are doing some uh, screenings of the film, and I'm curious where those are and if there's a good way for people to kind of keep up with where the movie's being screened at. Uh, and let me say first that I'm focusing on the distribution the actual distribution, uh, two film festivals don't stop going anywhere else in America, at least. Um, uh, the, uh, dis- uh, um, exhibiting and traveling with the, uh, Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited, uh, and promoting that, um, for all kinds of reasons. I've got a lot of money in it, and I'm researching ways of trying to increase money from that, uh, but mostly because um, I love it, and I finally have a version of the movie that I'm not, uh, I don't know, embarrassed wouldn't be the right word, but um, I have a version that I'm much more happy with, satisfied uh, with, that I don't feel I'd have to uh, prepare people for, uh, except know that there is um, uh, explicit nudity and these bits of explicit, explicit touch, you know, kind of, you know, I don't like to blindside people about that kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, but anyway, I'll be concentrating on the, on the promoting the Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited and the uh, etiquette pictures that be concentrating on promoting uh, taking Tiger Mountain, the, the new release. Now, the fact is, it's a new version, too. 
anybody that gets everything film or copy VHS, uh, you know, it, it itself could be kind of a revelation to any files to be written um, because it is just, you know, having, I don't know what, I think they're like the, uh, certainly the Blu-ray, if you got a hold of a Blu-ray at the early, would be the spectacular. Um, It'll still have all the dirt and scratches uh, on it uh, that accumulated on the tails uh, of the, but and it's eyes that were three took off. But I mean, even since you've seen it, we've done a few versions uh, and cleaned up, you know, a whole lot of the dirt and uh, the negative dirt and the positive. Mr. Alchemy, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Mike, God bless you. All right, we're back and we're talking about taking Tiger Mountain Revisited. Were you guys reminded of anything else while you're watching this one? I mentioned, you know, like Mad Max in 1984, a couple others before that, but I'm not sure if there's anything like this too much out there. Funeral Parade of Roses. Oh, okay. I can see that. It's got the like avant-garde kind of heady nature to itself. And there is, you know, in Funeral Parade of Roses, there is an androgynous character and you know, androgyny is not something that's really explored in film a whole, whole lot in like mainstream film. And obviously this film is not anywhere close to the mainstream, but Bill Paxton, you know, mainstream actor. And so having a character who, you know, has, I would say androgyny foisted upon him at the beginning of the film in a way, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept. But yeah, like that avant-garde nature of the film really brought me back to Mike White March, the initial one where we talked about, you know, Funeral Parade of Roses was one of the films we talked about. The Funeral Parade of Roses seems to have a lot more, even though it's uh, you know a, a kind of a retelling of the um, Oedipus. It still has a little bit of light fun to it, and this one doesn't have as much fun. I think. No, this film is pretty dour from start to finish, and again, it has the purplest of purple prose. I mean, there's a lot of monologuing and very like heady stuff being talked about like heather said there's some really kind of like deep quotes that bill paxton is espousing that you know i mean it makes this film very deep and a lot to a lot to really look at the first time you watch it i could see that i could i could see where you're coming from on that chris i think the way that everything is kind of like just like weaved together in this in this film and it's and it's very like uptight sad universe um it's its own thing for me like i can't i'm sure there i'm sure there are probably films that i may think of later on where like oh maybe that but honestly no i just feel like this one is like kind of a singular creature that's not a bad thing i mean the thing the thing about this movie is is this is one of those films that talking about it does not do it justice you need to go and experience it you must this is a film that needs to be experienced which Similarly to a film that Heather, you and I were on the projection booth talking about, Celine and Julie go boating. 
it's like, there's a lot to talk about, but at the same time, like, it is almost an experience unto itself. Man, that's such a good movie. <laughs> Anybody listening to this, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen. A lot of, a lot of heady conversation in that podcast as well. Absolutely. No no Bill Blackston and lipstick, though, so... Smirking at himself creepily in the mirror. If you were Bill Paxton, you'd do the same thing. You'd be like, yeah. I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me hard. Again, it's like that weird, creepy quality to it. So, Chris, what is going on with you and your world, sir? Well, what's going on with me right now is I have actually been joined by both of y'all from this podcast right now talking about some uh, some Stanley Kubrick films over at my podcast, The Culture Cast. You can find that at theculturecast.com. We've been talking about Stanley Kubrick films, but not the ones that, well, not the ones that, it's not that everyone has seen, but not the ones that I think there are nothing to say about at this point, which 2001 is a great film. The Shining is you know, that's varying opinions on The Shining. It could be about the massacre of Native Americans or the moon landing. But there's nothing that I can say or anyone can really say at this point that hasn't been said. So we're talking about stuff like Lolita, The Killing, Barry Lyndon, everyone's favorite Stanley Kubrick film. But uh, that's what what I'm up to. And I also do a little podcast with you, Mike, where we talk about Kolchak the Night Stalker. And that one's at kolchaktapes.com. Myself and the lovely Miss Kat Ellinger, who's also, uh, to any of you uh, devoted listeners, has been on the show before. Uh, we just recorded a new episode of our podcast, Hell's Bells, where we're going to be going into um, the world of music videos, and particularly videos that um, may be a little too much for, for today's delicate sensibilities. Um, is a lot of fun. So that should be, I know that it's being edited right now, so it should be out hopefully very soon. Um, also, I've just started uh, working on and doing for uh, Diabolique. Uh, it's going to be a series of articles going into the discography of The Tubes, one of my favorite bands of all times. Yes. And um, it's going to be called Darted in Your Armchair. And it's going to be basically article by article going into their classic albums. So it's going to, it's already a lot of fun. And I should have the first installment ready for viewing here in about a week or two. Um, for any further updates, you can find me over at mondoheather.com. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.